eyes should have done that number together. Oh? You'd be very attractive in the leather and goggle look. Well, I just need the leather. I already got the goggle look. Yes. I just love your eyes. Oh, they're like, like two ping pong balls floating in a pond of green algae. <sighs> Must be true. Everybody says the same thing. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, quite a gamut today. We go from like the mildest lady in the world to a cultural content warning. Yeah, but it's a cultural content warning for a milk toast episode, so we're still riding the same line. <laughs> yeah, before we get to those, how was your week? Uh, it's been an interesting week. Uh, for those who don't know, I live in San Francisco and I decided to try walking to work, but I walked down California street and I live close to Golden Gate Park. So that means that I was expecting one, maybe two hills, but not five or six sub hills. And presently my feet are still mad at me. I tried this on Monday. Nick, how long have you been in San Francisco? I've been in, I've walked to work before, just not this current office. You know, everything is a hill. Sometimes it matter where you're walking, you're going up a hill. I mean, on one hand, a hill is a hill is a hill. On the other hand, there's still going to be gradations in like the degree of hill that you're dealing with. And sometimes even when you're going downhill in San Francisco, you're going uphill. Yeah, but it was like a 90 minute walk. It's that hilly. How much was it? It was a 90 minute walk. Wow. I mean, it's good for you. It would be if I were in better condition. <laughs> As it stands, I'm going to try a, a more level curve if I try this again. This is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started uh, talking about two episodes of the Muppet Show, we'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and for the time being, Twitter, and lunaticdaring.com, where you can find all of our episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. And uh, if you would, um, we'd really appreciate it if you would swing by your favorite podcast app and leave us a review or a rating. Really helps out a lot. Um, so ready to get started? Let's get started. It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Anne Murray. Yeah! So uh, my wife turned to me before this episode even started and said, Anne Murray is just so mild. And after watching the episode, it's hard to disagree. She seems really nice. She does seem nice. <laughs> I It might be like just an American predisposition to what they expect out of a Canadian person, but Anne Murray, born Morna Anne Murray, that's ma'am for short, born on June 20th, 1945, in a coal mining town of Spring Hill, Nova Scotia, to Dr. James Murray, who was the town's primary physician, and Marion Murray, who was a nurse. She was the only daughter, but she had five brothers, um, and one of his brother or one of her brothers would also have a singing career as well. Um, she expressed interest in music pretty early. She would study piano for about six years and started taking voice lessons by the time she was fifteen. She sang Ave Maria at her high school graduation, studied physical education in an interesting curveball at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. She graduated in 1966 and taught high school PE for about a year. 
In the 60s, she auditioned for the CBC Variety Musical Show, Sing Along Jubilee, as a regular. Um, and she got cast uh, pretty pretty quickly. The show's musical, musical director, Brian Ahern, advised her to move to Toronto and record a solo album. Her first album, What About Me, was produced by Ahern and released in 1968. On the album, she covered songs by Joni Mitchell and John Denver, among a couple of other people. Her second album would actually be her breakout, though. This Way Is My Way was released in 1969 through Capitol Records. It featured her breakout single, Snowbird, which we'll hear on the episode tonight. And that made her, I believe, the first Canadian woman to chart on the Billboard Hot 100, and also the first Canadian artist in general to receive a gold record. The success of Snowbird put her in demand for a number of TV appearances in the U.S. and Canada. And this is still, you know, early 70s. She And she would have a, a list of subsequent singles chart throughout the 70s and 80s. There are a lot of them. I can read off a couple, but she was included on Kenny Loggins' song, Danny's Song, uh, another one called A Love Song, another one called He Thinks I Still Care, a Beatles cover called You Won't See Me. When I call you up, your lines engaged, I have had enough, so Honestly, there are a lot. She was very busy during the 70s and 80s. Um, I probably don't need to go down that full list. In 1975, she married Bill Langstroth, who was a music producer and a longtime host of Sing Along Jubilee. They had two children, William in 1976 and Don in 1979. Don would also become a recording artist in the future, and they would feature on a duet album, I believe, in the early aughts. She performed O Canada, the first American League baseball game played in Canada on April 7th, 1977. Her last number one hit was 1986, though her musical career does continue on through the early aughts. She retired after a, a Christmas album in the year 2008, which honestly, there's not really a lot in the way of scandal. And I'm not saying that the entire point is to be salacious or anything like that. But she just, like I said, she seems really nice and really accomplished. She really likes golf. Uh, she was, <laughs> She was the first woman to score a hole-in-one on the 108-yard par-3 17th hole at Cluhiat Golf Club, uh, for anyone that cares about golf. And No, I others, get it. She just seems really nice. <laughs> yeah. Like I, is she still alive? She is still alive. Uh, as of this recording, she is 76 years old. I found it hard to form an opinion about her. She reminded me of like moms of friends that I would have had in elementary school, or at the least the faces that moms of friends that I would have had in elementary school would have presented forward. But like, just sincerely, just sort of chill, like doesn't put you on edge. I feel like a lot of the commentary is damning her with false praise. And I really don't want to do that. There's like, there's nothing really bad to say about her, right? No, she's got a nice voice. Yeah. Um, Compared to our second guest, she actually is in the episode. (laughs) Fair point. Um, And actually does numbers. Yeah, that's <laughs> we'll we'll talk about Mr. Winners in a minute. The Muppet Show episode four fifteen featuring guest star Anne Murray, produced between January eighth and January eleventh, nineteen eighty. It would premiere in the UK on February first of that year and stateside on March sixth of the same year. A special note, the Disney Plus edition of this did cut out Dancing in the Ceiling, uh, which 
is not the Lionel Richie version, but is, I believe, Beauregard's first featured singing. It's his first solo gig, yeah. If you can track that down, it's, it's worth a watch. Yeah, it was, um, the last time it was seen was probably on the Nickelodeon broadcasts. Hmm. That's where we're watching our, uh, our broadcast versions. It's from when it aired on Nickelodeon in the 90s, I think. Oh, Ann, Ann Murray, 15 seconds of curtain, Miss Murray. Thanks, Scooter. Is skateboarding allowed in the theater? Nope, strictly forbidden. So we get to our cold open. I don't love the runner for this episode, but it's better than the runner for the next one. So we're going to. What runner? <laughs> the whole backstage story is they've got skateboards. Sorry, the roller for this episode. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we get to our cold open and Scooter knocks on the door, as he is wont to do, to let Anne know that the curtain will rise in 15 seconds. And then he skateboards around her dressing room and she asks if that's allowed. To which Scooter says that it's forbidden for some dumb reason until the Chekhov's gun goes off and he crashes into something and it's suddenly time to remember. I will say something slightly critical about the performance of them on skateboards. It just, it seems like it would make more sense to call it roller skating because of the way they turn. Yeah, it it does feel more like roller skating. That's like a small gripe and, you know, it, it is what it is. It's fine. It does lead to some funny moments later. It does. So uh, we get to the Muppet Show theme and something that I'm honestly confused as to whether or not they were sliding something past the radar because it seems dirty, but I don't know. Nah, he's just blowing a cow's horn. There's enough plausible deniability for me to think that I'm just like projecting something, but it's just, it felt like they were sliding something past. It's a weird image. It is. We're just going to leave it at that. We'll, we'll jump straight into our opening number, which is amazing. It really is. Before we meet, Miss Murray, we have a sensational opening number. Now, I'm not going to tell you anything about it because I want it to be a real surprise. And uh, uh, just a second. Hey, uh, hey back there. Well, would you turn off that uh, that uh, uh, chainsaw? Turn off the chainsaw. Come at, come, come at, come at. That's not a chainsaw. That's the motorcycle for Miss Piggy's opening number. I know it's a motorcycle. I was trying to keep it from the audience. And it is also featured in the, or the shooting of it is also featured in the Of Muppets and Men documentary. Yeah, which is so good if you can track down a copy. It's amazing. But uh, yeah, it shows you the entire, almost the entire filming of this number. So good. So Kermit goes on to try to introduce the opening, at which point Fozzie, uh, Sweet Fozzie, sweet, overly concerned Fozzie, completely rips the rug out from under Kermit's setup. Yeah, Kermit wants to surprise everybody with this cool number, and Fozzie has to come and screw it up. And then... We get to see Miss Piggy leading a motorcycle gang, including Link and a couple of other pigs, as they sing a song called I Get Around, which many of you, I assume many of you know, because it got a lot of play in the 90s. I have no idea if, like, Generation Z knows the song, but it's a Beach Boys song from 1964. Hell yeah, it is. It's just them a gossip back screen, riding around on motorcycles... And I'm completely underselling it. It's great. Like, yeah. Piggy owns every second she's on there. Link on that motorcycle next to her is never quite not Starscream. They have these decal stickers. And 
The Kermit sticker that Piggy has is just perfect. Yeah, I wrote down Link in Leather yet again. One of the other pigs that was, I guess, the pig equivalent of a whatnot had a ponytail, and it was a long ponytail. It just seemed like a hazard. It's a really great number. If you can just go on YouTube and see if it's there, the, the making of this number, it's just fantastic to watch. They're all, all of the performers are on these little dollies mm-hmm. with the bikes and their hands up in the puppets, and then other people are moving the dollies around back and forth. <laughs> and they're all watching their own individual monitors and, and, and syncing it up to the music and everything. It is a fantastic look at how they make the Muppet Show in what is a deceptively complex number. I don't know if it's deceptively complex. It probably looks like it's hard to do. Also, the Waldorf joke about Roadhogs was just the sight of perfect. It was good. So we go backstage and we get to see the pigs going off after doing the number. And Piggy also subtly let slide that she would like to see Kermit in leather. Which, okay. <laughs> leather and goggles. She wants to see him in leather and goggles. Right, because she just loves his eyes. They're like two ping pong balls floating in a pond of green algae. I like that she says that to Kermit, and Kermit's like, that must be true. Everyone tells me that. Piggy Piggy was just, uh, she's just flirting with Kermit a little bit. That's all. I mean, it's not all all. Uh, Scooter is still on his rollerblade skateboard. Comes craning into the backstage. <laughs> Kermit tells him to find a place to land that's, is it soft and padded? And oh, he goes, such a good Pig- setup. And he goes, Piggy! <laughs> Soft and well padded. <laughs> and then there's an amazing shot where they took, it was a POV shot where they, they rush the camera right up into Piggy's face. <laughs> this scooter comes in. It's a very um, uncharacteristically Muppet show shot. Like it's not a shot you would normally see on the show. Mm-hmm. And it pushes straight into her face as Scooter's coming at her. Scoot Town and Steve Boys. What's funnier then is so he, t- so Scooter crashes into Piggy. What's funnier then is Kermit tries to keep his calm and then they come back the other way. And that's where the big laugh is, is when they come back the other way. But yeah, the entire backstage story, Nick, is that they've got skateboards. That's all they came up with. (laughs) Yeah. There's no other story. They just got skateboards. I mean, the plot's rolling forward. So we we get Anne's first number where she sings her her breakout hit, Snowbird. Beneath its snowy mantle, cold and clean. The unborn grass lies waiting for its coat to turn to green. The snowbird sings a song he always sings and speaks to me of flowers that will bloom again in spring. Which, it, this felt like a Sesame Street number. Nick, I'm going to tell you, she sings three songs in this episode, and I can't tell you the differences. There's at least one of them that isn't about begging someone to come back or someone leaving her. The one that I really stuck in my head is the one later she does with the mayhem. Hmm. That's the one I could probably identify the most. She has a very nice adult contemporary voice. Yeah. Uh, Like, she is, when you think about 70s soft rock, she's probably right down the center for that. She's like a predecessor to Celine Dion. Celine's got better pipes, though. That's an interesting comparison. Celine's got like big ass pipes though. I mean Anne can sing too. She sounds she sounds fine. She's got a soft touch though. Yeah. The song is very it's very 70s. <laughs> the breeze along the river seems to say that he'll only break my heart again should I decide to stay. So little snowbird, take me with you when you go. To that land of gentle breezes where the peaceful waters flow. 
But she's during the course of singing the song, she's interrupted by a dodo who we've never seen before, but looks like Uncle Matt Fraggle. And it's hard not to see. A little bit, yeah. He lets her know that the story, the snowy forest that she's been singing in is going to be torn down to build condominiums. First of all, not very eco-friendly. No, but he's going the way of the dodo. It's a very long... They, she's singing the song, which is fine. And then this dodo interrupts her. And then they go and they lay eight or nine miles of track just to get to the joke Condor Minium. Yeah. It's a long walk. <laughs> it's a very long walk to a Off to of a that short pun. Yeah, exactly, to that punchline. Yeah. But again, it, it's hard to talk about these numbers because they just don't make much of an impression to me. Well, there's that. There's also... Up until you get to the section where she's interacting with the dodo, there's not really anything to say. Not saying that it's bad or anything like that. It's just she's singing her song. If you like her song, you'll probably like the bit. She's in the snowy woods. There's some birds floating around. It's not particularly compelling. My daughter wanted to know if they were real birds. And then I said, no, they're puppets. And she goes, well, how do they get their hands up in them? And I'm like, oh, well, they're different type of puppets. That took us down a whole nother avenue that probably made us miss the second half of the... It probably made us miss the second half of the song, but that's okay. It's okay. Yeah. If you caught the first half, you caught the second half. You did. <laughs> you did. We go backstage again, and it's Kermit's turn to slip on Scooter's skateboard, at which yes. point he crashes through the set for the Mexican hat dance number, which yep. I don't think we've seen these whatnots before. The dancers think it's funny until Kermit lets them know that he has to cancel their number because the set's been ruined. Uh, you guys think that's funny, huh? And they're like, mucho funny. And he's like, I'll give you mucho funny. You're fired. <laughs> you have to see the next one coming, though. Oh, absolutely. I was just trying to see if I could work some sort of a hat trick joke in there, and I couldn't. Um, so we go to the Muppet News Flash, um, where the newsman reports that Muppet Labs has announced the invention of a hair trigger exploding paper. The paper was inscribed with the following message, quote, Muppet Labs announced today the invention of a new hair trigger exploding paper. Which, predictably, it bursts into flames and disintegrates. But it, it also causes me to wonder if, in another Muppet universe, rather than having Beaker, Bunsen Honeydew has the Muppet Newsman. Who's just there like a very put upon John Hamm. Well, we do find out in the second episode, he's actually pretty dumb. Uh, not dumb, dull. Like there's dull. just, yeah, yeah. There's true. not a lot to him. There, we, there's more in our head canon about him than there really is about him. We've got a, he has a much richer life in our imagination than he ever has in the show. He loves scotch, man. He just loves scotch. <laughs> so we return to Coosbane. Yeah. Well, first Kermit comes out to introduce the number to replace the the Mexican hat dance number. And I wanted to point out that when he announces that they throw all their hats at him. Yeah. And one of them manages the hook on Kermit's nose. <laughs> and I just thought that's, that's one of those lucky, happy accidents when they're shooting it. Mm-hmm. Cause there's no way they can plan that. They're just tossing head. They're just some, they're just off screen throwing hats at Kermit. And uh, one of them just happened to catch him in the nose. And then he introduces us to Coosbane. Yeah. We see the green heap and the silver beak. Which Silverbeak is another Protoskexis, but I'm just, at this point yeah. I'm just wondering if they're like dinosaurs, where you've got so many different variations of Skexis. Like, well, we've had or... we've had Silverbeak before, and hmm. uh, I'm not a fan. It's a creepy looking puppet. It is a creepy looking puppet. I mean, it's it's basically Uncle Uncle Deadly level of creepy, but yeah, it's not horrifying, but it's creepy. But basically, they're uh, it's a it's a classic gym sketch. People are getting smashed over and over again yeah it, it reminds me of um it reminds me of a sketch they would have done on like dick cavett in mm-hmm. the 60s 
you know it, it's very very similar to to one of those old old pre-muppet show pre-sesame street even numbers where you have green heap and you have silver beak and they're doing that thing where they god it's so hard to explain <laughs> hmm. it's really hard to explain right where they're they're speaking their thoughts out loud Mm-hmm. Whimper. Giggle, gloat. Giggle, Roll. chuckle, gloat. Whimper, smash, 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 Silverbeak is streaking back and forth, and so he says streak, streak. And then once that becomes a little more, their emotions become more complicated. They start talking out their emotions, and then they get into a violent fight, uh, like a punch and Judy, knock, knock them out. So they're basically Pokemon. I guess, yeah. And then they end up being friends. That's basically the plot of any Pokemon game. They say their names, they evolve, you beat your friend in battle. This is Jim and Frank doing this, by the way. Hmm. Um, and uh, I, I end up, I like this number. It's very hard to explain. Mm-hmm. It'll be easier to explain with audio clips in here, but it's a very hard thing to explain. But I, it, it really reminded me of those. Like I wouldn't have been surprised to see this in black and white. Yeah, it would work just as well too. From there, we go to our UK spot, which features Milton Miller and his farmyard Philharmonic Philharmonic Trio where they're singing, is this the old sow? Much to the disgust of the audience. And the thing is, with that initial trio he has, you've got a pig, a sheep, and a duck. So I don't know why he's focusing pigs so much until the biker pigs show up, at which point I made one note. Zed's dead. What I wrote down for this one was, where is Marvin Suggs? Because this is like a Marvin Suggs number. It is exactly a Marvin Suggs bit. It is the town mouse to Marvin Suggs's country. Or sorry, the country mouse to... Marvin Suggs is City Mouse. Uh, although there is something he also reminded me of. You remember, he's like the most pitiful guy. Remember the guy that had like the robot joke machine? Yeah. And how kind of pitiful, like salesman like he was. Mm-hmm. This guy reminds me of that. That same type of pitiful. This guy's just begging for the audience to sing along and they won't because they think the song is terrible. But he's also a bit more sadistic. Oh, yeah. But he's also sadistic because he's hitting these poor animals in the face to get noises out of them. At least the Muppaphone. Well, no, my, my, that would be, <laughs> uh, yeah. no, the Muppaphone gets real dark. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, understood why it's a UK spot. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, again, I think the shots of the audience not singing are funny. Mm-hmm. I think whenever it cuts to the audience, he's like, come on, everybody sing along. And then it cuts to the audience and they're not doing anything. Like, I think that's just funny. You just need to bank that clip of uh, Jeb Bush being like, please clap. We go back to Anne's dressing room where Zoot's in looking for a saxophone, which I think this is probably just the most stoned we've ever seen Zoot. Excuse me, uh, Miss... uh, Murray. Yeah. (laughs) Miss Murray, I'm... uh, uh, Zoot. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I just came up to your... uh, Dressing um, room? Yeah. Because because I was looking for my... uh, Saxophone. High as a kite. (laughs) Can't remember his name. No. Can't remember his name. Can't remember her name. Can't remember why he's there. Can't remember what it, what instrument he plays. But the only thing that's true to him is the saxophone. He is baked out of his mind. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, he realized that he wouldn't have to play anything too hard tonight for, for this for, show. For it was all going to be pretty easy listening. Right. The rest of the Electric Mayhem shows up and they all sing a song called Walk Right Back, which... Again, it's another nice one. The only note that I put in for this is that 
and is perpetually jilted. Which yeah. I guess she's sort of like a proto Taylor Swift in that way. But right, they're all like breakup songs. Yeah, except she was married to the same guy forever, so it was. Well, this song was an Everly Brothers song. She didn't write it, hmm. so it was an Everly Brothers song. It was a hit for her um, uh, later on. But uh, this is the number I think I liked of hers the best. But that was because of the presence of the mayhem. The mayhem will do a lot for a bit, and because of the intro of Zoot. Hi, is a kite. He remembers his name by the end. This is probably, yeah, like I said, this is probably my favorite of her numbers. Walk right back to me this minute. Bring your love to me. Don't send it. I'm so lonesome every day. The next, we go backstage again and we see the performers from the Kuzbanian number just sort of hanging around. Although we we have a swap from a green monster to a purple one. Yeah, they, they kind of made a mistake there. It's a continuity error. I don't think they care, but it is it is a continuity error that they use the wrong heap puppet. Beauregard lets them know that they're waiting for the Muppet Show to provide them transportation, which I haven't attended a lot of live shows like this, but they would be able to just sort of sit in the audience, wouldn't they? Or just like catch the rest of the show. They wouldn't be expected to leave right after their number. Uh, no, but you know, uh, that they should be in their, they should either be out there or they should be in their dressing room. They shouldn't be hanging out where Kermit is. True. Is the idea, but they, they, you know, but, but the Muppet show isn't exactly fine upstanding establishment. So it's not like, you know, they've got, they've got drivers waiting for all the guests, you know, but Kermit tries to explain to them that they never provide transportation, which isn't entirely true. Cause I'm sure plenty of people have been fired out of cannons. That's <laughs> true. And what uh, about that time they run a train? Exactly. But then they attack Kermit, which, you know, is the appropriate response. Violence is always the answer. Right. Um, and Kermit has Scooter on skateboard to just come take care of them. And Scooter shows up wearing this green chauffeur's uniform. <laughs> which he got from where? Who the hell knows? Yeah. His uncle owns the theater. He got it from wherever he found it. Scooter effectively just sort of like... That's the thing about the roller for this episode is it's the same note repeated over and over again. Yeah. And a couple of times it's funny, but it never really feels like it evolves. This is the same gag as when Fozzie was on roller skates and he went down the back stairs. Yeah. It's the same gag. It's just Scooter doing it. He rolls down the back stairs on his skateboard. He has two people in front of him, so he knocks them out the door. But still, we've seen this before. It's so weird, man. It's so weird. The only backstage story is the skateboard. <laughs> Yeah, but it's also, I guess there just wasn't a lot to play against unless someone was going to have a broken heart and be talked through it or something. I guess. I don't know. It was just weird. Um, but we get to a bit which isn't on the Disney Plus version. It's uh, Beauregard singing a song called Dancing on the Ceiling, which is not the Lionel Richie song, Dancing on the Ceiling. She dances overhead on the ceiling near my bed in my sight through the night I try to hide in vain underneath my counterpane there's my love up above but he's laying in bed and playing harmonica and as he sings a ceiling ghost which is just like a whatnot dances on a ceiling yeah kind of ethereal looking yeah it's, i mean it would it, freak you out this made me weirdly nostalgic because when i wasn't grounded 
I was trying to sneak to watch as much TV as I could, and there was a random old Steve Gutenberg movie called High Spirits. I know which featured some sort of a love story between him and a ghost, which might have been Daryl Hannah. It was Daryl Hannah. Score. Movies directed by Neil Jordan, who directed uh, like Interview with the Vampire and The Crying Game. That is amazing. Had Peter O'Toole in it. I remember it having a big ensemble cast. I didn't recognize most of the people except for Gutenberg because of the Police Academy movies. But the ghost eventually crashes through a hole in the ceiling and Jerry and the Atrix guitarist pops her head in from upstairs and yells at him after previously warning them not to dance on the ceiling, which I guess raises other questions about the liminal space between old age and death and being able to actually see the spirits and communicate with them. I wrote, is his is is this supposed to be his love that is dead? And if so, is this some Edgar Allan Poe shit? Oh, Bo. It probably would have been an accident, too. What'd you think of Bo's open first number? Um, It was... It felt out of place in this episode. I don't think that's why it was cut, but, like, on an episode like the old Vincent Price episode, this would have been a great fit. Yeah, I thought that, too. It was... um. Yeah, no, you're right. It would have been good on Vincent Price. It would have been good on a couple of other maybe spooky episodes. It might have been better in the next episode. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, I'm happy for Bo. Yeah. Well, I'm sad for Bo that it got cut out. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't exist anymore. But it is if you know where to look. Welcome again to the wild world of Muppet Sports. Los Kazagher here in Glasgow, Scotland, where Angus McGregor is about to attempt to break the world record for bagpipe eating. This Angus McGregor, the most Scottish name that you can imagine. Oh, wait till break- next week. Wait till next week. We have an even more Scottish name. Oh, wow. Attempts to break the world record for bagpipe eating. Of course, as McGregor begins to eat the bagpipe, he discovers that it isn't dead yet. <laughs> I love that moment where Kazagra's like, it's not dead yet. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, Is that like people it's picking a out their lobster from a lobster take? Yeah, exactly. It's a set <laughs> of bagpipes. The bagpipe starts shooting. Yeah. <laughs> Chases Kazagra off stage. It's, there are all sorts of questions about the physiology of this particular bagpipe, but it is terrifying to imagine that this thing would be leading down the hall after you. Yeah, yeah. The idea of a sentient bagpipe is is frightening on its own, but um, but yeah, the idea of it chasing you down, yeah, that's no good. Full of hot air. We we go backstage again, where Scooter's still pulling his old shit. The thing is, Scooter's still pulling his old shit. After a certain point, I feel like you just find a different theater because Scooter's going to keep pulling that my uncle owns the theater shtick. After screwing up, it, it would be one thing if like everything else in the show was not a problem directly because of Scooter. But to do all of that and then have the audacity to be like, my uncle, like your uncle gets to watch us fight now and then I'm going to be out of a job, but it's okay. I'll find another one elsewhere where I don't have to deal with you. Yeah, but uh, it works every time. It does because... Kermit has no spine. (laughs) And he's worried about money. But apparently Scooter's uncle is in the audience and he wants to see Scooter do his trick, but also he would be talking to his accountant about a potential rent increase and... They didn't want to give Scooter's uncle any reason to be in a bad mood. <laughs> right. We get to our closing number uh, where Anne sings everything old is new again. Um, while Scooter, Fozzie. I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. Scooter, Fozzie, Lou Zealand, and the pigs from the biker gang and Zoot and some whatnots skate around on skateboards. When trumpets were mellow and every gal only had one fellow. No need to remember when, cause everything old is new again. Yeah. Uh, there's not, there's not a lot to say about it. 
There's a couple of funny moments when they skate by. Fozzie on a skateboard makes me smile. That was nice. Crank did a really good job with that. Yeah, Fo- Fozzie on a skateboard makes me smile. Seeing some of the pigs and, and everybody skating, like, that that was kind of funny. The idea is that she's singing this number straight, and in the background, we're getting Muppets zooming by on skateboards, so that's theoretically funny. Yeah. Theoretically, on paper. I don't know. But, uh, no, and, and again, you could tell me whatever. You, can t- you could have told me the song was called Kokomo, and I would have believed you. Like, it doesn't matter like I, I can't tell the difference between any of these songs i mean everything old is new again and it all sort of blurs together i guess <laughs> yeah exactly and i don't mean to be down on her i think she did what she was asked to do which is come in and play her hits the thing right? is and play think, play her songs i think she had a wide target audience in the 70s and i think that they loved her for the exact thing that we're saying isn't bad but isn't necessarily compelling and tastes change with the times there's no discounting her skill, or she wasn't one of those guests that didn't play with the Muppets. Her interactions with Zoot felt genuine and authentic. It just... She was good. The problem is she was Anne Murray. The thing is, this is a, an episode that, where they the Muppets would have acted around the guests as opposed to with the guests. But what they were doing around the guests also wasn't particularly compelling because it was just, look, Scooter's got a skateboard. Yeah, no, I can, I, I agree with that. But we, we get to our closing number uh, where Kermit finally decides to just jump in and come in on the stage on a skateboard to thank Anne for being their guest. And when, Ga- when Anne pats Kermit on the ba- back, he ends up going into the orchestra pit where his head gets stuck in a French horn. And then we see more people skateboarding. It's It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, the bit the bit where she blows him out of the French horn is funny. That was nice. Yeah. Where he, he gets his head stuck in the French horn and she blows him out of it. Like that that's funny. Yeah, I fairly like other than the I get around number, mm-hmm. which is a, a contender for me for end of the mm-hmm. year. Uh, aside from that, a fairly um forgettable episode. Yeah. And it just to, again, to no fault of her own. To no, no fault to Anne Murray. I think maybe with a better backstage story or like, I don't think she really, except for maybe Zoot, she didn't have any direct Muppets that she'd really had any sort of chemistry with. Well, and they didn't, they didn't undercut. I mean, I guess the Dodo Bird did a little bit, but they didn't really undercut her at all. She just came out and sang three Anne Murray songs. And if you're someone who loves Anne Murray, it's probably quite entertaining. Yeah. We don't quite fit in her. She's not necessarily for us, you know, Mm -hmm. or for 2022. All right, Chad, tell me about Jonathan Winters. So we just went from what seemed like a very nice lady with, let's say, a fairly, like we said, um, calm demeanor, nice demeanor, pleasant demeanor, to an episode with a big fat cultural content warning that it earns more than once. Right out the gate, too. Right out the gate and all the way through. Jonathan Harshman Winters III was born November 11th, 1925 in Dayton, Ohio. His father was an insurance agent and an investment broker and an alcoholic. His grandfather, Jonathan Harshman Winters I, owned a bank called Winners National, but the bank failed when the Great Depression hit. His parents split when he was seven and he went to live with his mom, but he really didn't get along with either of his parents. I get the feeling they were very serious, kind of like severe people, and he really was not. He 
He spent his time in his room making up voices and characters and sound effects. He later said that he took a lot of shit uh, at school for his parents being split up, which was you know more unusual back then. During his senior year of high school, Winters dropped out and joined the Marines. He served in World War II's Pacific Theater for two and a half years. After the war, he studied cartooning at the Dayton Art Institute, where he met his future wife, Eileen. He got a job as a DJ where his job was to merely introduce the music and read the weather, but he couldn't help himself and he livened it up and pretty soon people were listening for those voices and characters and noises that he was creating when his mom wasn't paying attention. He worked his way through radio from Dayton to Springfield to Columbus, Ohio, where he was on the air for two and a half years. And then his program director there got him a rehearsal for CBS radio in New York City. He did stand up in nightclubs where he became known for his improvisational style and started getting TV spots. In 1957, he performed in the first ever color television show, a 15 minute special sponsored by Tums and Acids. He did a lot of voiceover for commercials and started recording comedy albums in 1960. Over his career, he'd be nominated for 11 Grammy Awards, including eight for Best Comedy Album, and he won two. He was, an epi- he was in an episode of The Twilight Zone. He did Johnny Carson a bunch. He was in more than 50 movies, actually, including It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Uh, in the 60s, he had his own weekly variety program. Of course, he did. It featured guest stars and comedy sketches and music. He did Dean Martin's Celebrity Roasts, was a regular on The Andy Williams Show, and frequently appeared on Hollywood Squares. On the final season of Mork and Mindy, Winters was brought in to play Mork and Mindy's child, Mirth. <laughs> he was older than anyway it was the whole thing I'm working Mindy he was a regular on Hee Haw for the 83-84 season alongside our buddy Roy Clark he did voices like Grandpa Smurf on the Smurfs as well as for the Pound Puppies and Yogi's Treasure Hunt he also provided the voice for Scooby-Doo and played the thief in Richard Williams troubled production The Thief and the Cobbler in the 90s he won an Emmy for his role on the sitcom Davis Rules he was the second ever recipient of the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor winning in 1999. In the 2000s, Winters still worked, but less often. He came out of retirement in 2011 to play Papa Smurf in the live-action Smurfs movie and its sequel, which would be his final project. The secret runes are hidden in the drawing. You see all that in there? Look here at the patterns on this page. I remember that episode of The Twilight Zone. Sorry. Hmm? So I remember which episode of The Twilight Zone he was in. Sorry, but continue. He only married once to Eileen, and they had two children. She passed away in 2009 after more than 60 years of marriage. Jonathan followed her four years later in Montecito, California of natural causes at the age of 87. He's from another time, Nick. He is, but he's also a really good dramatic actor, which I didn't. He was a, he was a pool shark on an episode of the Twilight Zone. He played like it was sort of a be careful what you wish for sort of setup, but he, he just played a suave pool shark really, really well. And it's maybe his comedy chops were, I mean, that apparently was what he was known for, but a hundred percent what he was known for. Yeah. That, that episode is, it's not one of the first ones people think of, but it is a really good episode of the twilight zone. I mean, would you, would you, I mean, the man was, and it's hard to imagine watching the episode, I guess, but it's just cause our tastes are just different now, but the man is a comedy legend. He is. And I mean, we've seen other people on the Muppet show who people that we've seen outside of the Muppet show who have been very, very good comedically, but didn't necessarily work with the Muppets. Uh, Harvey Corman springs to mind. Right. So maybe, maybe it's just a bad setup and he didn't really hit that mark with this one. Or maybe his style just doesn't work today. I mean, there's a few things he does that are questionable for sure. I think he was trying to capture some of Zero Mostel's lightning and it didn't stick. Uh, this is the Muppet Show number 416 uh, with special guest star Jonathan Winters, produced in mid-January 1980, debuted in the spring that year. Like I said, it has a cultural content warning and all I wrote next to that is, boy, howdy does it. Get to our cold open and Jonathan 
So here's our backstage story. It's introduced right here in the cold open. Jonathan has run into a, I'm going to use their word, has run into a gypsy. There's no time for that. Don't you know there's an old gypsy and she's put a curse on the performance. I just can't appear tonight. I can't appear, I tell you. Oh, but sir, there, there's no gypsy curse. Oh, yeah. It's always people like you that say, there's no gypsy curse. Well, there is a gypsy curse. I saw her in the alley. Frightwig, a woman with hair clear out to here. One eye, that tells you something. One-eyed woman. She looked like she'd been hit from the back real hard. That is our backstage story. The show has been cursed by a gypsy. It leads to the front stage a couple of times. So that's our first uh, hit for our cultural content warning. Just the the kind of caricature of the gypsy, um, of the gypsy in general, and of the gypsy kind of curse and the the cultural insensitivity of it. I guess you would say, right? So that's strike number one, but it's it's it, it turns out to not be the most egregious strike in the episode. At least it's not Spike Milligan. At least it's not it's it's not Spike Milligan, but it gets close to Spike Milligan once or twice. And uh, we get to the the opening theme, and Gonzo when he goes to blow his horn, he blows a fanfare like a opening. Um, like the fanfare you would play when you open a, a race, like a horse race. Kermit comes out to intro the show. He's almost hit by two sandbags that fall from the ceiling because this is part of the curse, right? And he makes a joke about, you know, lightning never strikes twice. And then this very ham-handedly animated onto the frame bolt of lightning comes down into the screen, which I thought was kind of cute. Kermit's a skeptic. He's always the skeptic of the bunch, right? He didn't believe in the Phantom of the Theater. He's not going to believe in a curse. Uh, so he introduces the opening act, which is kind of, um, it's a pun on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You're at a circus and there's some pigs that are dressed up as lion tamers and they have uh, a, a lion named Butch, or t- sorry, they have a tiger named Butch and they're singing this song called Hold That Tiger. And then this lion named Sundance shows up and springs him and then it he runs around and stuff and it's just kind of um chaos and not very funny i got nervous because that lion looked real flammable they do go through rings of fire yeah <laughs> they do go some through some rings of fire the funniest joke to me though is at the end statler water say like man butch and sundance are gonna have to find some hole in the wall to uh to take refuge in and then all of a sudden they show up in their box as a hole in the wall. Now, the hole in the wall, I don't know if you know this, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they ran with a gang called the Hole in the Wall Gang. I did not know that. And the hole in the wall was the name of their hideout. So that's what that is. That's a, that is a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid joke reference there. From 1960, ugh, 66, 67, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. 69, 69. The song's from 1917. It's like this old ass... I don't know how to explain the song. You're going to hear it on here. But besides that, I don't know how to explain it. They just sing the words, hold that tiger over and over again. Not not super interesting. So we go backstage and Kermit's trying to get the next act on because that one went, was not supposed to go that way. It was supposed to be like a circus act and the tiger and the lion kind of blew the whole thing up. And so he's trying to, and this is part of the curse, right? Nothing is going to go right tonight because they're under this curse. And uh, the next act is supposed to be Patty Severn in her trained chair, but she ends up dropping her chair and then asks if she, he would consider trained sticks. On stage, Bernice her in her half horse, half watermelon act. Oh, bad luck, Kermit. Hmm? Yeah, the horse half just came down with hoof and mouth disease. <laughs> uh, could we just use the watermelon half? What a bizarre and disgusting thought. I have questions that I'm not sure I can have answered about exactly what that act entails. What, the half horse, half watermelon act? Yeah. Which half is the horse and which half is the watermelon? There are a lot of questions. So so none of the, none of the Kermit's acts that he's got queued up can go on. 
And so Fozzie's like, well, why, why don't we get Jonathan Winters? He's like, oh, yeah, we have a guest star. How about Jonathan Winters? And Jonathan Winters is like, I'm not going out there. This place is cursed. He's still hyped up on this gypsy curse. Curtin's going to introduce Jonathan. And uh, he has uh, and Jonathan freaks out because he his box of props is missing because apparently he's carrot top. And and we'll find out he's not that far off. So um, he wants his box of props. Again, it's gone because curse. And um, so Fozzie goes, well, you can have my box of props. And on top of Fozzie's box of props is a noose. What was Fozzie doing with a noose? And why was it out of the box? That implies it was freshly used. I, I feel like the only serviceable answer to that question is moving right along. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so they uh, they do a bit. Uh, Kermit does have a good joke there where, where Fozzie asks him, why don't you just call an intermission? He goes, I tried that one time and nobody came back. He takes Fozzie's prop box and he goes out on stage with it. And Fozzie, for some reason, sits in the prop box while he's doing his, his act. And he just does this scene where he improvs. It's probably written. I don't know. But he improvs. Um, Fozzie hands him a hat. And he takes that hat and he turns it into a character and um, does that character, which I do, do believe Spike Milligan did a version of that. Yeah, it, that's probably the part of the episode that reminded me of that mo- the most. But at the same time, this is significantly more coherent. It's more coherent, yes, because, you know, you, you identify, okay, he puts on a ship's captain hat, so he pretends to be a ship's captain. Elias, you do well at the wheel. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I wish I could make you out in this bloody storm. <laughs> puts on like a British gentleman's hat, and he becomes a British gentleman. He puts on a cowboy hat, and he becomes John Wayne, and he makes a very tasteless joke about Indians. Well, I don't care what you say. I'm not afraid. Sure, there's 6,000 Shoshone. You walking bear, come here. You got a lot of lines for an Indian. But that's okay, because then he becomes a Shoshone chief. And we get our other reason for our cultural content warning. Is Jonathan Winters with an Indian headdress on speaking what I'm assuming is Mok Shoshone. My people and I, Chief Iron Hand, will do a dance for you. I just, I feel like he doesn't dovetail into Spike Milligan at this point. He dovetails into Steven Seagal, and that's somehow more uncomfortable. Steven Seagal's a terrible man. He really is. Everybody go listen to the dollop episodes about Steven Seagal. Oh, that was right. And yeah, and he does a little like rain dance, tribal Native American dance. Not okay. We're just going to label that as not okay. It doesn't age well. So Kermit still doesn't believe in the curse. Again, he's, he's he's our skeptic. And um, Fozzie tells Kermit tells Fozzie that something bizarre, hideous, and uh, unnatural would have to happen. You called? <laughs> Gonzo, you don't count. Now, I will believe that there's a curse only if we're visited by something absolutely disastrous. I've been missing Gonzo tonight, to be honest. Yeah, I could have used a little more Gonzo tonight. So Kermit, Kermit still doesn't believe in the curse. And then an asteroid or a meteor, I guess, um, lands in the Muppet Theater on Kermit's hand, by the way. 
on his flipper, which I'm sorry, he'd never get be able to use that again. If a meteor landed on his flipper, but, and he gets trapped, but it's not just a meteoroid. It's not just a meteoroid, not just a meteoroid, meteoroid, meteorite, meteorite. It's just not a meteorite, <laughs> but it cracks open and there's two kind of freaky little looking aliens inside. What'd you think of the aliens? Do not fear, Earthman. We come only to observe and ask questions. Yeah, it was a little, a little disturbing. Their heads are like teapots. A little bit. And they blow it's, steam out of them. It's out of left field, but I guess this entire episode's out of left field. But realistically, we could have probably just used this as the runner and left all of the gypsy stuff. I think the aliens would have been better as the runner just without all the curse. Oh, yeah. Because they're funny in this next one. Because then Kermit, Kermit's stuck under the under the meteorite, and uh, so he tells Fozzie to go introduce the next, or F- tells Fozzie and Scooter go on stage and do that uh, song you've been practicing. So they go out and they sing this big band era song, Fozzie and Scooter do, called "On Her Doorstep Last Night," which is a fun little number. Yeah. When the heart is young and free, and spring is in full bloom, the young man's fancy turns to love. We know. There's a pair I often see as they stand beneath the moon, and the other night he just let himself go. What did he do? He kissed her. Who did? He did. Where? On her doorstep last night. And then about halfway through, though, the aliens come out and join the number. But they're also packing heat. But they also have blaster pistols. (laughs) Yeah, they come out and they sing the song with them. And Fozzie and and Scooter are getting scared because, I mean, they're seeing space aliens. That's pretty scary. He kissed her. Who did? He did. Where? On her doorstep last night. He hugged her. Who did? He did. Where? On her doorstep last night. He said, you are my darling Kate. Then he squeezed her fingers in the garden. And we did. You did. We did. And then at the end, they pull up their blaster pistols and Fozzie and Kermit go running away. They they had said in the earlier scene they were just there to observe and ask questions. But I guess, I guess not. Be not afraid. So then we get to probably my favorite uh, scene from the episode, Bear on Patrol. It's so good. This is a great Baron Patrol. This is probably the one gem that I would save from this uh, episode. It's so good. Uh, Patrol Bear comes in and he is wrestling an octopus that he has arrested at the aquarium for picking pockets. And uh, of course, Link is completely oblivious during the struggle he has with the octopus. And Frank Oz murders it. (laughs) So good. Just murders this. So good. Jerry Nelson's playing the octopus. I don't know exactly how they're doing it in this scene. I know he does the voice of the octopus. I'm not 100% sure how they're doing the wrestling. It just, it looks like it's all just space where it's probably him and one other puppeteer running the other hand, you know? Mm. It's it's really great work with uh, Fozzie wrestling with this octopus. And then they get, Link gets a call at the end. I want you to release the patrol bear. Uh, would you release that prisoner, please? Yeah, what? You see, that call was from the aquarium. I want you to go over there and check it out. Somebody stole a valuable octopus. And the the octopus pops up wearing Patrol Bear's outfit and goes, got it, chief, and walks off. So can we talk about this for a second? Because this raised uncomfortable questions. How do we about handle About Fozzie's animal- nudity? Well, that, but also how do they handle animal control in the Muppets? Like, universe. Like, is Rolf going to walk down the street and get... Picked up for being a stray dog. That's interesting. I don't know. It's a random question. Very good Baron Patrol. Now we have our UK spot, which is somehow less offensive than when Peter Sellers did it. They did do the same song. Okay, yeah. It's not the same song, but it's the same setup. It was a bunch of gypsies in the woods singing a song. 
the gypsy and then a band of other gypsies um, sing a song called Golden Earrings. Link and Annie Sue are with them too. It's from the 1947 film Golden Earrings. This is less offensive than it could have been. Yeah. This is actually a nice song. The only thing that's like quote unquote wrong with it is you've got this stereotype that you're leaning on. But I actually thought the song came off okay. And it, it was a it was a sincere I hate to say respectful, but it, it didn't it wasn't poking fun of anybody. Right. It was just a sincere rendition of the song. But it reminded me of the Peter Sellers one. Mm-hmm. Against my better judgment, I enjoyed Golden Earrings. Be my gypsy, make love your guiding light. <laughs> and let his hair Okay, so Muppet Labs. So, Muppet Labs. Mm-hmm. First, Uncle Bunny is very unsettling. <laughs> he calls me. Bunsen calls himself Uncle Bunny. <laughs> it's, there's so much to unpack there. That is just falls <laughs> ass unsettling. At least, at least it feels like their relationship has changed from like guinea pig to like, you know, affection. Has it? Because I'm pretty sure they also straight up killed Beaker. Like, I, I had a legit you killed Kinney moment. <laughs> Uncle Bunny. <laughs> so, Honeydew is um, showing off his new invention, which is a luggage compressor, which is basically just like a car compactor, but for luggage. And he puts in a small suitcase and it comes out. It's a conveyor belt machine, like so many of them are. And it comes out the other side of the conveyor belt machine and it's a smaller suitcase barely smaller suitcase and he's like well i know that wasn't very impressive what happens when we put in a large suitcase and beaker's having a really hard time getting the large suitcase onto the conveyor belt and he trips and he lands onto the conveyor belt and he goes through the luggage uh compactor because bunsen honeydew doesn't believe in osha compliance he does not believe in osha's compliance he also doesn't believe in like I don't know, like emergency, like, you know, fail safe levers or something like that. You know, he doesn't, he, he doesn't run to the wall and unplug it. He just lets Beaker go through and Beaker comes out flat like an ironing board. Oh, poor Beaker. And, um, they killed Beaker back in uh, Jonathan's dressing room. The, one of the aliens comes in and introduces himself as Jonathan Winters at the comedian to the two Jonathan Winters actually, um, uh, I didn't understand this at all. Although Jonathan Winters does have a really funny joke where he says uh, he makes a joke about Steve Martin. What planet are you from? I'm from Earth. Are you from Earth? Yes. I'm You're a comedian. Sir. Are you a comedian? Yes. <laughs> oh, Steve Martin. Gosh, you'll no, do no. anything, won't you? Uh, which I don't know if is like a playful jab at Steve Martin or like a older guy jab at Steve Martin. Not sure, but fairly unconsequential. Like most of this, um, our next number, our next number is a song called You'll Never Walk Alone, which is from the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical Carousel. I would have thought this was the UK number. Yeah, it feels like the UK number, doesn't it? Um, a caterpillar wearing uh, rain gear and galoshes kind of um, trounces uh, through a storm and uh, uh, singing this song, You'll Never Walk Alone again and and as it goes the wind gets worse the rain gets worse felt sesame streety yep that's never it's not necessarily an insult by the way love sesame it's not Street. it's just there's it's it's jarring at times because the muppet show does have a distinct feel most of the time last week we were talking murder mystery yeah and this time so it does feel a little whatever the, I, I will say this about this episode the laugh track is doing work yeah 
the laugh track is going over time for this episode because most of this shit ain't funny, especially the Jonathan Winters impressions and all that stuff. Not funny. And the laugh track thinks it's hysterical. The laugh track is doing work. So we get to what is okay, actually funny, when we find out that the final stage of the curse is that everyone is going to turn Swedish. Well, the old gypsy woman said that in the final stages of the curse, mm-hmm. everyone would turn Swedish. <laughs> I don't believe it. Girls, did you hear that? In the final stages of the curse, we'll all be foreign to splurn to scary. Oh, it's happening already. Gonzo just turned Swedish. Soon everyone will first see. And then they start talking like the Swedish chef. Some of my best friends are Swedish. <laughs> he does say some of my best friends. Kermit does say some of my best friends are Swedish, which I don't know if it had the connotation back then that it has now. <laughs> I don't know if it's coded differently. It probably but wasn't, to be honest. It probably wasn't. But it, it's still funny. And then the chef comes out with his accordion and he's so happy that everybody's speaking Swedish. <laughs> he doesn't feel alone anymore. No, he's no longer a stranger in a strange land. So this is the thing. Everybody's turning Swedish. Then we get to our closing number, which is this is weird. It is. So the closing number technically is th- the three troll characters. This is the big kind of walk around Muppets dancing to an instrumental version of English Country Garden. That's the number. But nobody. But that's not the. But that's not the. F- how to put it that's the number that's going on on stage but that's not what the final number is the final number is the comedy around it right we keep cutting back to it but it's not meant to be our entertainment right our entertainment's meant to be the newsman runs in to the middle of the performance and says and 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 gives a news break that everyone's turning swedish he's like but i'm not i haven't turned swedish yet and the gypsy comes in and says well that's because the curse doesn't apply to people that are boring and stupid and after that the the newsman then begins to uh, pretend to speak Swedish by dropping smorgasbord Stockholm Igmar Bergman and meatballs I guess this is before Ikea probably but I'm also there was that bit in the top secret where you had the priest reading out his his last rites and he's just yeah. putting out a bunch of random Latin words yeah yeah glorum <laughs> ipsum caveat imtor <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in forever. Love that movie. So yeah, so this this is a very weird finale, especially since it has very little to do with our guest star. He's kind of a non-entity. In the whole episode, he's a non-entity. Like, he has a couple little bits here. He has one number, which is the thing with the hats. He also, like, I think he was tied to the inciting incident, but even that... Yes, he gets to do his uh, offensive Romani accent several times. I think this would bother me less if I didn't know about the Twilight Zone connection, because I do. I remember that episode very clearly, and he was very, very good in it. Yeah, I I mean, that that was something that I found when I was researching him, that he had been on Twilight Zone. So it was something that obviously popped out at me. This whole finale, like, he just doesn't... He has a couple of jokes, but he doesn't... They couldn't find a way to, like, work him into a to a number he doesn't attempt to sing and dance and like he shouldn't have to but at least spike milligan tried to sing a little bit you know i'm like, still gonna rate this above spike milligan but no, like, abso- no 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 absolutely no no we're nothing's gonna nothing's i don't think anything's gonna beat spike milligan what was the episode where we had the arabian guys that were trying like they struck oil kenny rogers kenny rogers that was a good episode despite that Without this plot line here, there's not a lot to this episode. There's like Baron Patrol. There's Baron Patrol. Yeah. 
and yeah, there, there's and like maybe the aliens, but it could have been this. This one feels like a misfire. Like I, I think that Jonathan Winters could have been implemented better. I don't know how, and I don't know enough of his other work to really to really comment on it. But it it didn't hit its mark. It's not. It doesn't offend me the way that the Spike Milligan episode did. But see, to me, like the sense of his sense of humor in this, the comedy in this reminded me of Jonathan Winters. Like he that kind of Robin Williams esque energy mm. at times. Robin, Jonathan Winters. Jonathan Winters was a big influence on Robin Williams. I could see that. It's why he was on Mork and Mindy. And so, like, you really see that same kind of energy. Mm-hmm. But if you go back and watch old Robin Williams stand up, it doesn't age well either. Mm-hmm. And not just in like the subject matter, but just in the style comedy. It's a rapid fire thing, isn't it? Like just go, 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 go. Yeah, go, 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 go. But comedy, comedy fashion changes. Mm-hmm. And in things that were, it's not just like, oh, people used to make jokes about ethnicities and now we don't do them anymore. Yeah, that doesn't age well. But there are also certain styles of comedy that don't age well. You're not going to see a lot of Borscht Belt comedians these days. And it, and it has nothing to do with their material. It has to do with the way they present their jokes. Mm-hmm. And um, and it just doesn't go across. But but we do find out at the end, for the second week in a row, we find out that the culprits behind all this are Statler and Waldorf. They were behind the murder mystery. And they also have, they're the ones that paid the gypsy to put the curse on the show. So basically, Jonathan Winters didn't need to be there at all. No, he didn't. <laughs> He didn't. He 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 has he has no actual. Well, he does at the at the very end, which was kind of funny. So the gypsy he goes to Stadler and Waldorf are like, you know, they're upset because they were speaking Swedish, and then the curse wears off, and she's like, "You only paid for a half hour." You guys only paid me for the half hour curse. Well, thank goodness. Oh, wait a second. You mean you two geezers paid for a gypsy curse to be put on our show? Yeah, but I didn't think it would include us. And then another hour, it's only seven bucks. She's like, it's seven dollars for another hour or whatever. Jonathan Winters ends up paying her the seven dollars to keep the curse on for another half hour. And what I thought was pretty funny was Kermit does the entire uh, farewell in mock Swedish. <laughs> that was a nice touch. Jonathan Winters mock Swedish is terrible. Yeah. His did not sound at all like any of the others. His mock Swedish was bad. I noticed that at the end there. I was like, what are, are, you, are you, what are you supposed to be speaking? Are you supposed to be speaking uh, the mock Swedish? Cause it's not working. <laughs> I agree with you. It's a misfire of an episode. It just doesn't get there. Um, it, it, it has the unfortunate albatross of the, um, uh, of the gypsy storyline. But even without that, I don't think it would have sung for us. No, because there's no, you're right though. He's a non-entity in the episode. He's not used well, you know, whatever that means, whatever way they could have used him, whatever other way they could have used him. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't, I'm not, I'm not savvy to what he was up for doing. I'm not savvy to what he was capable of doing. However, all I know is he was misused and they could have used him a lot better mm-hmm. in the episode. And then that's a fault of the show less so than the guest star, mm-hmm. at least from, 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 from this view. You know. Next time, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away.
Um, we're going to be doing episode number uh, number 417. Who's our guest? Starring the stars of Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Mark Hamill, Anthony Daniels, Kenny Baker, and Peter Mayhew. And then episode 418 with Superman himself, Christopher Reeve. We got a double dose of uh, two of my childhood heroes back to back. Getting a nice palate cleanser. And then after that, we got Wonder Woman. We got a great little run coming up here. I promise it'll it'll make up for these last these two kind of kind of duds at Lunatic Daring on social media, lunaticdaring.com. And like I said, you know, a review, a rating wouldn't hurt. But uh, and, and as you can tell, I'm very excited for next episode. So until then, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. Thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. You know, something doesn't have to be funny to be good. What'd you think of this show? It was good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>